The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Family Matters with your host, Dr. Virginia Collin. In this program, we will explore some of the challenges families face and the solutions they create in today's world, where marriage, parenting, and family forms are not what they once were. Now, here is Dr. Virginia Collin. Welcome to Family Matters. I'm your host, Virginia Collin, professional family mediator. On the show today, I'll be talking with two other professional family mediators, Stacy Langenbahn and Brian Hirsch. I'll be talking now with Stacy Langenbahn. Stacy is the president of Detente Mediation in Texas and has uh, some interesting experience and a lot to say about collaborative law and about team mediation. So, Stacy, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm, it's my pleasure to be here. It's really great to have you here. And I love it that this is your area of expertise. So I can just say, tell us about it, and you'll know what to say. <laughs> well, thank you for giving me that floor. Uh, so let me start with collaborative law. Um, I was a litigator for a very long time, and I realized, like some other lawyers, mental health professionals, and financial people, that we really needed a better way for divorcing spouses particularly, to avoid a litigated process. And a wonderful man named Stu Webb, who's an attorney in 1990, came up with what's called collaborative law. And what he said was, what if we could have divorce lawyers who agreed that they wouldn't go to court, who would simply work with the divorcing spouses directly, and also include, so that they could communicate well with each other and manage their own emotions, what if we included a mental health professional to do that portion of it? What if we had a financial person who could help them work through their budgets, their assets and their debts, the division of those things? And also, how about somebody who can be a parenting specialist and work with the parents to devise the best parenting plan for their children that's the healthiest and allows them to make all those decisions for their own family rather than having a judge do it. And it was a remarkable process. And it took off brilliantly. And collaborative law has, unfortunately, I think, a few challenges throughout the recession. It it was a process that ended up being something that people with uh, quite a bit of, of financial means who could afford to do the team process found to be greatly beneficial for people who didn't have the financial means to pay all of those professionals. um, Sometimes they were able to find great collaborative lawyers who would use the professionals just as needed, and they would be available then to, um, to work with those people and get them through, still keeping control of their own decision-making and um, trying to achieve their personal goals. 
one of the commitments that the collaborative lawyers make, which separates them from other lawyers, is if the and the other professionals also on the team make, is that is that if there is no resolution in the collaborative process, then those lawyers will withdraw from representation and will not continue to represent those clients in litigation. So they made a commitment to their clients that if we can't resolve this for you, then we are not going to carry it forward and create conflict between you after we've tried to find resolution. So what ended up happening, I think, is as collaborative law rose in popularity and then the recession came in and pretty much, um, I will say, made it much more difficult for people to afford the process, we've seen an emergence of attorneys, mental health professionals, financial professionals, and even none of those folks who just have business experience or are just born mediators, they have conflict resolution training or they have masters in conflict resolution. These folks have stepped up to the plate and said, we need another way to help those people avoid litigation and find a way to reach agreement. And what we've seen is a movement toward mediation with a lot of the team members that did a lot of collaborative law and were very well trained who have moved over into a mediation arena. The difference is that typically in mediation, we see that you'll have one of those professionals who can assist the parties, but very often there are no lawyers involved in the mediation sessions themselves. But typically those those lawyers might be involved outside of the mediation session to assist the parties with any advice that they need. And um, it's been a movement toward bringing in professionals as needed, like a mental health professional to help manage emotions and communicate during the mediation so the parties can actually talk all the way through without stumbling and spinning out over these things that normally they push each other's buttons and they can't get all the way through the conversation. Mm-hmm. If they've got that person involved in the mediation, very often they can have the conversations, reach decisions that work for them, and finish the process without having to have lawyers be involved, except perhaps at the end. Yeah. To me, um, I, I guess there are two comments I want to make. One is just about collaborative law. Um, I think the benefit for the clients is that they know their lawyers are committed to a cooperative process. They're, they're not, the goal is to reach a settlement, not to help them fight with each other. The downside of that is if it doesn't work out, if they're not able to work out a settlement, they can't keep the same lawyers. They have to start over with somebody new, which is a very expensive proposition. Um, I, yes, I agree. So the benefit of collaborative is that the lawyers are committed to the resolution. The downside, unfortunately, is that commitment sometimes leads to a, if there's no resolution, it leads to a higher amount of money that needs to be paid and some inconsistency between what happened in the collaborative process and the litigation process in that transition may be difficult. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I will say that collaborative law has a very high settlement rate, a very Mm -hmm. high resolution rate. So the people Mm -hmm. that do it and can complete it, they have a very good chance of succeeding. 
can can you give people any advice about predicting for themselves whether this process is likely to work for them, the collaborative law process? Well, I would say that when they are looking for for a collaborative process or they're looking for a way to try to reach agreement, if they know they want to reach agreement and they really feel like they need a lawyer to hold their hand, then a collaborative law process is a perfect opportunity for them. If they know they want to try to reach agreement, they're doing, even if there's high conflict between them, they have the desire to reach agreement, but they really don't think they need a lawyer to speak for them or to hold their hand, then a mediation process may be a good place for them. So to me, as an attorney, having been trained in both of these models, I believe that one of the foundational thresholds between deciding between collaborative and mediation is what role do you want a lawyer to play? If you okay. need a mental, a, a, um, pardon me, a legal professional to help guide you through the decision making, let you know what the law says, um, but not giving you advice, in other words, not telling you what to do, then a mediation with a mediator who's a lawyer may be very helpful because that lawyer doesn't have any stake in the outcome. Mm-hmm. That person is simply guiding through the mm-hmm. decision making process and helping them take ownership of it. I think the word you just said was, I think you just said lawyer where you meant to say mediator. The mediator doesn't have a stake in the, in the outcome. The mediator is not on one person's side advising one person about what to do. Ah, yes. Thank you. That is correct. (laughs) Yeah. And I can say also from my own experience as a family mediator, uh, who is not and has not ever been an attorney, um, It's, you know, people use lawyers as much as they need to. Uh, An important distinction for them to be aware of is that you can hire an attorney to be your advisor, answering your questions and giving you the information that you need and helping you make good decisions about protecting your interests. You can hire a lawyer to be your advisor without hiring that lawyer to represent you, which means they speak for you. And sometimes they even instruct you not to speak for yourself. That is correct. And what's happening a lot more now is that rather than a client going in to see a lawyer and saying, hey, here's my divorce, what's going to happen? That means you're giving the lawyer permission to talk to fact witnesses, look at all the documents, send interrogatories and requests for production and requests for admissions and do depositions. All of that's called discovery. If you ask a lawyer, how's this going to turn out, that's what they do. If you go to a lawyer and say, look, I'm going to work through a mediator to try to get my agreements already in place, can I use you simply to ask a law question or to help with a specific legal issue? And can I use you simply to write my paperwork if I do all the rest of it myself? That's called unbundled legal services. And so basically you're paying an attorney for a limited scope of representation or of assistance only for the things you want the lawyer to do. And that's a much more common thing that I'm seeing now with a mediation practice where the people come together, want to get their own agreements, and then use a lawyer only for the things they need. Okay. And the second comment I wanted to make is, uh, I think, just restating something that you said in a different way. 
If you choose to use the collaborative law process for working out the terms of a divorce, then in every session, there are two lawyers present and sometimes some other professionals who can also be helpful. If you choose mediation, then in every session, there's one mediator present um, and the lawyers are in the background. You can call them for advice when you need to. So that's to me, that's a very big distinction. You're paying two expensive professionals for every hour of work, or you're paying one sometimes slightly less expensive professional for one hour of work. That's true, unless you do a team mediation model where you have a mediator who may be a financial professional as well as a mental health professional. So you may have two mediators in there who have different skill sets who can assist the parties with whatever it is that they need, the spouses with whatever they need. Maybe it's a like my personal process is a legal professional and a mental health professional. So we cover the legal. I can usually do most of the financial and walk them through that. If we have tax, particular tax information, I may bring in a CPA. But uh, you can create the team how you wish. But the fundamental distinction is, in your mind and in mine, is how you use the legal professional. Collaborative law, absolutely, it involves two lawyers. Mm-hmm. Okay, the we're going to take a, we're gonna take a break not. now, Stacy. And when we come back, we're going to be talking some more about what goes on in team mediation. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, Visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. Family members too often find themselves in court arguing about separation, parenting schedules, financial issues, divorce, estates, or care of an elderly relative. There's a better way to solve a family problem. Work with a professional mediator in private, confidential meetings. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 
You may also send an email to radio show at com. Now, back to Family Matters. On Family Matters today, I'm talking with Stacy Langenbaum. I'm Virginia Collin, your host. And during the break, Stacy and I discovered that there is a large difference in the way many mediators work from state to state. Texas is apparently quite different from Virginia. So before the break, I was saying that in Virginia, it's it's normal, it's common practice that the parties meet with the mediator and the lawyers are not in the room. They're available at the other end of the phone or, you know, to be seen between mediation sessions. They could, they're allowed to attend the mediation sessions, but very often the clients choose not to have their lawyers present because they don't really need their lawyers present. They're just going to talk with each other with a mediator to facilitate the conversation and get them through the things that are just too hard to talk about all on their own. Texas is different. Tell me about Texas. Traditionally in Texas, mediation is done where each party hires an attorney and they go through a litigation process where the attorneys develop a case for their individual client and against the other spouse. And that's being done on both sides. And then those lawyers very close to trial will present their cases to a neutral mediator who uses essentially the bad information that the lawyers have gathered to beat the other person over the head with it and say, oh, you better settle because they've got a whole bunch of stuff on you. You don't want to go to trial. You're going to lose. And they say, oh, no, we have this great stuff that's really good for us and really lousy for the other person. The mediator says, okay, well, bring that to me. I'm going to go into the other room and tell them how they're going to lose. And unfortunately, it's a very exhausting process. It tends to create even more conflict between the two spouses than when, they ha- than when they came in there. And although mediation in that method is relatively successful because people get scared about going to trial, probably 80 to 85% of those people will find resolution that way. A lot of times people feel uncomfortable because they're long sessions. They typically go four hours, eight hours, sometimes 10, 12 hours. When people are so exhausted, they make decisions that they might regret. And it tends to be something that is is a little bit difficult to manage financially because they will often do mediation very close to trial. It's too late if they don't settle everything to prepare for trial. So parties end up spending money on their lawyers, spouses, I say parties, that means spouses, end up spending a lot of money to to get the lawyers ready to go to trial, even if they resolve everything at mediation. Okay, you know what? I would not even call that mediation. That doesn't fit the definition of mediation as I understand it. That is a high-pressure settlement conference. Mm-hmm. Well, they call it mediation because it is private and confidential. It's voluntary. And um, it, is, it is a third party who's assisting in the settlement or resolution of issues. I personally have done that many times representing clients. I've also mediated as the mediator. I thought that we needed a different way to do it, much more like what you're doing in Virginia. And with my background in collaborative law, having experienced what a team can do, I developed what's called 
team mediation. And I sit as a legal professional. However, when I sit as a mediator, I don't represent either party. I have no interest in their outcome. So I'm really impartial to what they do. But my job is to bring in whatever professionals we need to assist that party. If they're not talking well together because they're too emotional, a mental health professional like a family counselor can, or someone like you, Virginia, who's very good at understanding emotions and working people through talking, can be an amazing gift to them. If they need financial information or help trying to decide, you know, what does Uncle Sam say about the way we want to do our divorce? then I will bring in a CPA or a financial professional who can guide them as to, you know, if we do this mix of assets in this divorce, what will that look like in five years or 10 years or 15 years? Mm -hmm. If they need some help because they have a special needs child or there's a parenting issue that's significant, I'll bring in a parenting specialist who can talk from the perspective of the child. This is what a child who's this age needs. This is what a child developmentally needs, and how do we schedule a parenting plan or structure it so it works for them. So team mediation allows you to bring in whatever professionals the couple needs, or perhaps they don't need any professionals. They may be just fine sitting with the mediator and working through these things. has a lot of flexibility, but it comes with interest-based negotiation rather than that kind of hey, they've got bad stuff on you, you better settle. That's what we call evaluative style, where the mediator says, I think you're going to lose this. I've seen this happen in court over and over again. You better settle. In my kind of mediation, which is a much more um, transformative style, that means the parties are encouraged to talk about why something is important to them. Why is it important that they have this asset or this division of assets? Why is it important to their family that they have a particular parenting plan, time with each parent, decision-making about education or where their homes will be? Why is it important to them? Because once the parties understand that, they know what to offer to find resolution in a way that helps them transition their families from being married, and if they have children, to being mom and dad and good Mm co-parents. Because the other way tends to make them enemies. Mm-hmm. And that makes it very hard for them to be good co-parents and cooperate with each other after they've been through that in their divorce. Yeah. So I think one of the stinc- distinctions that is implied, and we maybe haven't said it 100% clearly, is that the process you offer is early mediation. Correct. Before you've hired lawyers to dig up the dirt on each other and make each other look bad, you know, let's just sit down and work this out constructively. Whereas the the second process you described that I would call a high-pressure settlement conference that mm-hmm. is currently called mediation in Texas, um, you know, that's after the lawyers have already done what they would do if you were going to trial. And when lawyers yes, do... correct. Yeah, when lawyers do what they do to help you get ready for trial... That's a process that tends to be damaging to families, whereas the early mediation that you offer is a process that's constructive for families. Absolutely, and and that's a very good point, that this mediation that I offer is early, and people usually come to me even before they have filed an initial petition to start Mm -hmm. the divorce process and before they've talked to lawyers. 
mm-hmm. because they're looking together. Most of my people come to me, my clients come to me and say, we have talked. We don't want lawyers to be involved. We're fearful that they will stir up conflict that we don't want. And we really want to manage our own decision-making, and we really are cost-conscious. Mm-hmm. We want to keep the money that we've earned and saved over the years and worked so hard to to um, to have. We don't want to pay that to attorneys. We want to keep as much of that as we can, knowing that we're going to be dividing a pie. The smaller the pie is, the less there is for each of us. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And it's the same way with me here in Virginia. Or I guess I get a lot of people who come together and have not talked to lawyers yet, but because they they think that they can't are able to do most of the work on their own with a little help from a mediator. But I also get a lot of people who have had one or two conversations with an attorney, and that way they're well informed as they come into mediation. And it seems to work well either way. People seem to be good at figuring out for themselves whether they need to talk to an attorney early or whether they can just work mostly in mediation and, I hope, check with an attorney at the end before they sign the document. Yes, I agree with that. And I've also had people who have come to me who have had attorneys and they've started in the litigation process and they're very unhappy with the attorneys. They say to me, they charge me for every single time I pick up the phone and talk to them, and they're usually not even available. And even if they are, they're not listening to what we want. They're not Mm -hmm. doing what we want. And my husband and I have come together, or my wife and I have come together, and said, you know, they're just not doing what we thought they were going to do. And we can do a lot of this ourselves at a lot less cost and with a lot less damage. So let's find a different way. And those people, honestly, are some of my very best and most determined clients because they know they can do it a different way, and they're, mm-hmm. they really want to, and they come together with that decision and common goal, and they usually work quite quickly through mediation. Okay, you have half a minute left. What would you like to repeat for emphasis, or what would you like to add? I think for emphasis, it's important for people to understand when they're going through something like divorce that they have options to talk with professionals about what the professional offers. How much decision-making and control does do they individually as spouses have, or how much decision-making and control do the professionals want to have? How much is it going to cost, and what are the long-term benefits or long-term detriments of the process that you choose. Find one that works for the two of you and find one that will allow you to meet your goals for yourself and your family and be very, very specific with the professionals you talk to about where you're headed. Okay. One last important question. Where can people find you online? They can find me at www.divorcemediation.com. Texas.com. Terrific. Thanks very much, Stacey Langenbaum. It's been great having you on the show. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. 
We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Sadly, that's wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, or co-parenting, there is a better way. Family mediation. Save time. Save money and make good plans for your children. Visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Now, back to Family Matters. Welcome to Family Matters. I'm your host, Virginia Collin, professional family mediator. And my guest today is another family mediator and also much more. He's Brian Hirsch, who is a partner with Hirsch and Ellenberger. He's practiced family law in Reston, Virginia for 30 years. He has litigated family law cases extensively and has also been a substitute judge in the Juvenile and Domestic Relations Court. He was chair of the Virginia State Bar Family Law Section. He's editor of the family, Virginia Family Law Quarterly. And he's got more credentials, but I don't, I want to get to talk to Brian, so I'm going to stop now. <laughs> Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay. Um, before the break, Stacy Langenbahn and I were talking about the different kinds of people who are called mediators um, with different training, different qualifications, different credentials. You have um, more experience, much more experience than I with the variety of mediators in Virginia. And so I guess I'd, I'd like to ask you especially about um, a group of retired judges offering services that a lot of people call mediation. Right. Um, it's, uh, there are a couple of groups in Virginia, I'm not going to mention names, but um, that it's, they're basically uh, large groups nowadays, um, sometimes as many as 30 or 40 uh, retired judges from across the state that um, engage in what they refer to as mediation. And they're very popular uh, among the lawyers. 
um, because these are, you know, judges that we, we've dealt with over the years. They're people that have a lot of <clears throat> built-in credibility because <clears throat> we've appeared in front of them and, you know, with all the trappings of the courtroom and, and the robe and everything else and, you know, refer to them as your honor. And <clears throat> a lot of them have retired a little earlier than judges used to retire because they have sort of a post-bench career as a mediator. Um, and, and quite frankly, a, a lot of judges are not staying on the bench as long because they, you know, are enjoying doing mediation or what's referred to as mediation. And they, um, it, it's more lucrative, quite frankly, um, you know, than, than being on the bench. And so they have a, a post-bench career doing this. And it's, um, it, it's controversial in the mediator crowd. It's probably not that controversial in the lawyer crowd. Um, lawyers don't get hung up with technical definitions of mediation. And so if we're, if we're not in a courtroom and we're resolving something and there's a neutral third party involved, we may very loosely call that mediation. Um, a lot of, you know, certified mediators, um, and non-lawyer mediators have been, you know, very vocal about saying, you know, quote, that's not mediation. And, and that's sort of a common refrain when people talk about those groups. And uh, I have used the retired judges from time to time um, because, you know, lawyers on the other side of the case may want to use them because they, they know, you know, the judge, they trust the judge. They know that if, you know, this may be a, a, a judge that might be good with their client in, in convincing them, you know, to, to find some middle ground to settle. Um, but, you know, they, they are out there. The, the problem from, you know, people like, you know, people that are classically trained or, you know, trained in traditional mediation, what they do would not fit the definition of mediation. Okay, there's a little problem with the pronouns there. So what you're saying, what the retired judges do doesn't fit what classically trained mediators recognize as mediation, correct? Correct. Okay, yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm in that camp myself when I hear descriptions of what happens in what the retired judges call a mediation session. It doesn't sound to me at all like you're helping people reach a voluntary, well-informed decision of their own. It sounds much more like a high-pressure settlement conference. Well, it it, it can be at times. Um, they're, I mean, they used to go literally till three or four in the morning until they got a signature. Um, there was a growing backlash to this. I wrote an article uh, for the Virginia Family Law News called Settlement or Bust, um, which um, I didn't realize how popular it was going to be. And uh, a lot of lawyers, you know, basically would hold that article up saying, look, you know, there have been studies done. I mean, you, you're, you have a, you're a psychologist, so you know that, you know, with sleep deprivation, you know, our thought processes, you know, change and, and you know, quite frankly, some people can become, you know, somewhat impaired in decision-making at that right. late hour. And they used to do that very traditionally, and now they're not doing it as late um, because, quite frankly, under the rules of professional conduct for lawyers, um, that, you know, we're not allowed to, uh, you know, allow our clients 
to get in a situation where they might be impaired. And mm-hmm. so they don't go as late as, as possible, you know, to get it signed, but they do tend to go, you know, sometimes to 11 or midnight, and, and there's still some issues around that. And so that goes to your point of it being somewhat of a high-pressured situation. Um, you know, so uh, it was interesting. I was talking with Jim McCauley from the Virginia State Bar Ethics Council uh, when I wrote that article, and he, you know, and I said I, I didn't know if I was being too extreme, and he said to me, you know, Brian, in some countries, you know, to torture people, they use sleep deprivation, so I don't think you're overstating the case. So I thought that was an interesting point. That is an interesting point. I should perhaps also say that while what these groups of retired judges are doing is not what I would call mediation, it is providing a useful service. Um, and I'm, you could speak to that, I'm sure, that there it, are clients who I mean, benefit. Yeah, I, I don't, I, and I never, I don't, I'm not critical of that particular process when it's used correctly. I mean, what it typically looks like is, the, the judge and the parties and the lawyer will meet in a conference room for about 20 minutes, go through the process. The judge will talk about his or her credentials, and um, then they break out into two separate rooms, and it's basically shuttle diplomacy from there. Um, the parties do not, they're not in the same room sometimes ever after that. Sometimes they might get together briefly. Sometimes the lawyers and the judge may get together, but typically it's the, <clears throat> the judge going back and forth between the conference rooms and trying to get the case settled. That can work, um, and there's nothing, you know, improper about it from the perspective of the lawyers, you know, rules of professional conduct um, to have a third-party neutral do something like that. Um, it tends to be fairly and heavily evaluative, um, which you know, a lot of mediators don't like the evaluative model to begin with, let alone you know, this kind of situation where you have one party in one conference room with his or her lawyer and another in a conference room with his or her lawyer and the judge going back and forth. It doesn't look like <clears throat> what, most, what most trained mediators would call mediation, but it is effective. Okay, um, let's let's pause for a yeah. second. For the listeners not familiar with our jargon, what does evaluative mean as distinguished from what happens in other kinds of mediation? Well, so evaluative is distinguished from facilitative mediation. Facilitative mediation is what I think the, most people think of as mediation, where two parties sit down um, and it, with a mediator and they identify issues and they, they explore you know, possible resolutions. They come to an agreed-upon resolution, and then they sign an agreement, and the mediator is just there to facilitate all of that. Evaluative mm-hmm. mediation is quite different where um, what you have is basically assessing each party's relative strengths and weaknesses if the case were to go to court. So it is a, a legal analysis and looking at it, you know, sort of, you know, how would, looking at the, at the law, at the statutes, at the case law, looking at the facts, you know, considering credibility and other issues, how might this play out in court? Not to say within a certain day with this number or that number in terms of support or property distribution, but to give a range. You know? I see. Yeah. And, and again, it could be really helpful to the parties to hear a retired judge say, if I were ruling on this case, this is what I would say, or this is the range in which I would consider things. Exactly. The, the interesting part of that, though, <clears throat> and, and I only discovered this through 
doing this is that, in, in a comment that a judge who I'm friendly with said to me one time, and we got into a very discretionary area, um, and he pulled me aside, and I've known him for 25 years, and, and I appeared in front of him, you know, many times, you know, when he was on the bench. And he said to me, you know, Brian, I know how I would rule in this case, but how do the other judges, how do they typically rule? And I kind of laughed to myself, and I thought, well, yeah, we're pulling in a retired judge, but judges are different from each other because they're people and people are different. And when you have a retired judge giving, being evaluative, you're basically asking that judge, what would you, you know, Judge Smith, Judge Jones, whomever, do in that case, you know, as opposed to lawyers who try cases in the jurisdiction I'm in, there's 15 sitting judges that we could pull on a given day. You know, I'm in front of all those judges, and I know what the range of possibilities is, but when you have a retired judge, they've sat in the same courtroom, you know, for 15, 20 years, and all they know is what they do. So it is interesting in, in the sense that you have to be careful in, in, in which judge you choose, and a lot of times... Um, lawyers are very careful about matching the judge with the case, you know. And lawyers <laughs> yeah. actually can influence that. Pardon? You have choice. Do you have a choice as a lawyer about which judge you're going to come in front of? Uh, well, not, not, but no, no, for as a mediator, yes, you do. In other words, when we're choosing a, a, a retired judge as a mediator, oh, we okay. will often say, you know, you know, Judge Smith might be good because Judge Smith always had a nice touch on custody cases, or Judge Jones might be good because she was always, you know, had a good business head and could, could deal with, you know, small businesses or tax issues or things like that. Okay. Um, so we do try and match them up, but they only know what they would do, whereas it, it's just an irony of, of the setup when you're asking them to be evaluative as opposed to when you're asking a trial lawyer to be evaluative when we're in front of all these different judges and we know the range of possibilities that could happen. So it's, it is an interesting twist to it. And a lot of it is just the fact that you're referring to this person as judge and they're a retired judge and, they, you know, they have the mantle of authority that they walk into the room with. But, okay. You know, Brian, yeah. we're going to take a break now. And um, when we come back, I want to let people know that we will be talking maybe a little more about retired judges and mediators, but also about how to handle high-conflict cases in mediation. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, Keep expenses down and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. 
The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. Family members too often find themselves in court arguing about separation, parenting schedules, financial issues, divorce, estates, or care of an elderly relative. There's a better way to solve a family problem. Work with a professional mediator in private, confidential meetings. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at com. Now, back to Family Matters. I'm Virginia Collin on Family Matters, talking today with Brian Hirsch, who is both an attorney and a mediator, and um, also sometimes a substitute judge. So we had an interesting conversation before the break about judges and mediators, and now we're going to talk about handling high-conflict cases in mediation. This is one of your specialties, Brian. It's something you've done much more than I have. Tell me about it. What drives the conflict and what can a mediator do that will work to help these people make progress towards an agreement? Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is there, there's no magical answers to any of that. Um, and uh, I, I, some of this was just experience because as someone who litigated a lot of cases and then became a mediator, I had a lot of, you know, I know a lot of lawyers and they were referring me you know, some of their, quite frankly, some of case, their nastier cases that neither of the lawyers wanted to try. So I sort of, you know, uh, accidentally fell into doing a lot of high-conflict work. Um, I One thing I will say that was very helpful to me, just as a lawyer and as a mediator, is Bill Eddy um, does a lot of uh, high-conflict analysis. He's a, both a lawyer and a social LCSW, and he has a lot of work on this, and I won't go into <clears throat> all of his theories and things of that nature, um, but, you know, he has done a lot of work in this area and sort of gives a lot of foundation to what I do, and I've gone to seminars of his, and he's great. There's also other books on high conflict, um, but basically the, the concepts to understand are that it, it is the people that drive the conflict. Um, you, you know, you can have two different situations, you know, two situations that are identical, but you have different people in them. And you can have some people that, that are not high-conflict people, you know, that are not driving the conflict and, and trying to ratchet things up and get things done peacefully. And you can have the same situation, and you can have very high-conflict people who have other agendas, who have, you know, personality disorders, anger issues, you know, I don't want to say colleges, but, you know, need to be, quite frankly, to, to see some of this, these behaviors. Um, a lot of it centers around children, unfortunately. Um, you see children getting caught in the middle, uh, being, you know, being used against one parent, using the child against the other parent, and things of that nature. What I, I found a couple of things are, are useful. One is to take a very child-centered approach um, and to get people to understand what it looks like from the child's perspective. 
um, and to understand how children react to conflict and um, that children don't have the coping mechanisms to cope, you know, with their parents' conflict and to sort of look at it through their eyes. That, you know, there's a percentage of the people that will respond to that. When I, when we talk about, you know, all the conflict that's going on and I ask them, you know, can you, you know, are, where are your children when this occurs? You know, how, you know, how do your children react to this? Are your children in therapy? What is your child, you know, what does the therapist say? And typically most therapists are saying that, you know, most of the child's stress is being caused by the parents' conflict. So that'll, that's, that's worthwhile too. There's a whole other set of people that quite frankly, even though they profess to love their child or want peace or whatever, that they just, they're, for whatever reason, they're, they, they either enjoy the conflict or they don't know how to get out of the conflict or they're just so angry that this is their go-to emotion. And I have found over time that the best way to appeal to people like this is on a practical level of saying, you know, this is what your behavior, you know, will look like, you know, if you go to court. So it often tends to be in more of an evaluative or just in a court discussion of, you know, you want X, Y, and Z, you're this angry, but let's look at this. And this is, you know, this is how judges often would interpret this kind of behavior or judges really don't like when, you know, you list your girlfriend as the emergency contact person and not the mom, or, you know, when you say awful things to the child um, and have the child write terrible emails to you, you know, things like that. And, you know, I mean, quite frankly, there's some people that even if you talk about the humiliation that might come if they go to court, they don't respond. Sometimes it's just, this is the cost of going to court. Let me just tell you that if you have a contested custody case, is $50,000 per side. You know, and sometimes that's the only thing that gets to people. But it's sometimes it's just trying different ways of, you know, are you going to, you know, what is it just trying to find that connection? Part of it, too, is, you know, them feeling like they've been understood. You know, some people just, um, they're just angry and, once they feel you understand what their position is and what they've gone through, you know, and you can create that connection, sometimes that gets you through too. So there's no magical, you know, one size fits all answer because where conflict comes from and what it looks like is, is highly varied on the situation. But I will reiterate that we often see it more in any place else than, you know, in child custody cases or anything involving children. Um, and so, you know, it is hard, you know, to, to deal with some of these people when they, they just don't understand it. But, you know, and there are also times, quite frankly, when it's just so high conflict that you have to say to people, I'm not sure you're a mediation candidate. It sounds to me that you're very upset that you, you, know, you want to achieve certain goals that the other side is not willing to, in any scenario, capitulate to. So therefore, maybe you need to consider going to court. Maybe you need to talk to your lawyer. Uh, as a mediator, sometimes I bring in the lawyers into my mediation um, so that we're, and we can all sit around the table and talk about it. And sometimes it's helpful for the parties to hear the lawyers talk to each other. I found that, you know, to be helpful. Um, so, you know, because they're just sitting there and it's almost like watching a bit of a mock trial and they can see how things unfold. So there's no... One, you know, like I said, one one size fits all answer, but 
it, there are a lot of commonalities and there are certain techniques to use, you know, that mm-hmm. obviously with our time constraints I couldn't go into, but um, I, I deal with these issues a lot and sometimes it's just shifting the approach for people yeah. that help. Yeah. Yeah, I um, I know I've had some cases that were somewhat difficult where there was a history of domestic violence and one or both people would pretty easily become very angry. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I could work with with people anyway, and sometimes it was just too much. One of them was just too emotional to think reasonably about what was in his or her own best interest. Mm-hmm. They just, the emotions got too much in the way. And they, they do. And they, they, you know, I've had times when I have not terminated mediation, but I've terminated a session uh-huh. um, where oh, yeah. people have gotten so agitated. And I could see that if we just kept, if we, if we kept at it, that it was going to be destructive. And I often find though, that there are times when I do that, and I don't do it a lot, but I've done it, where it sends a message to somebody. Um, because a lot of times I get mediation clients sometimes where they most, and my impression is typically that they've been told by their lawyer that they're not going to get these things that they, all these things they want in court. And that maybe they, if they want to try and get it, maybe go to mediation and see if your spouse will, will agree to that. And so a lot of times that's the context that I'm in. Um, sometimes I'll, I'll just know pretty well that that's where they're coming from. And I'll, you know, I'll say to them, maybe you need to go to court, you know, and then, then they realize, well, geez, my lawyer said I'd never get what I'm going to get in court. You as a mediator, you know. Yeah, you why don't like you please you, you get might... this for me? <laughs> Listen, yeah. Brian, we got about a half a minute left. Is sure. there anything you want to say to sort of tie up a loose end or reiterate something really important? Um, it, it, it really is that it, it, it truly it's you know, in terms of the high conflict stuff, and I, I tend to do that more than anything else. It is the parties more than any, anything else. People say to me, you know, how long will this take? And I say, the one thing that's constant in all my mediations is the mediator, and that's me. And they all take different amount of time, so it's up to you guys. And I believe very much on letting them take responsibility and shifting it to them as to how things are going to progress, you know, and how much work we're going to get done. Okay. Thanks so much, Brian. Um, I, we didn't do your website. Do you want to tell people where to find you online? Sure. It's um, Nova, N-O-V-A, familylaw.com. Great. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on Family Matters. Please tune in for another edition featuring host Dr. Virginia Collin next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be kind, heal, and grow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 